Hello, hybrid first period AP government. Welcome to your test review podcast. So I'm going to go over the whole review in this, and I'm going to try and move quickly because uh, there's some stuff here that can kind of bog me down because I, I do enjoy talking about it. So I do want to try and go as quick as possible uh, in <clears throat> honor of your time. Uh, so take Tuesday, the 14th, which is our digital day to study, prepare, uh, and also to finish up your blog if you need to. That's when that'll be due. I did change it from Monday to that day. So you do have some time. Uh, the test is on Wednesday. All right. It's multiple choice uh, and an FRQ. So be sure you bring your device because you will write the FRQ on AP Classroom. So bring your device. Be sure you're registered for AP Classroom. The codes are on E-Class and all that kind of good stuff. Um, all right, let's get going. Uh, this test review, if you want to have the piece of paper out, is on uh, E-Class uh, in the activity feed. All right, first up is the clauses and principles of the Constitution. So there are several questions on the checks and balances. Uh, it is not a question of, hey, define check and balance. It is knowing what some of the checks and balances are. Um, so just you know, remember a couple of them. Uh, as far as the president goes, for really their big one for the, the courts is that they get to pick uh, all federal judges. All right. So the president gets to pick all federal judges. As far as the legislative branch goes, um, the executive branch can veto legislation that the uh, Congress sends to them. And that's really the big one. Um, they don't have a great deal of power over uh, Congress. The president doesn't. Okay. Uh, then the courts, they are kind of similar in that they are limited as well uh, as far as uh, their big one for both of the, the executive and the, the Congress, the legislative branch, is they can declare stuff unconstitutional. So if the president does an executive order, which I know we haven't talked about yet, but we will, um, if the legislative branch creates a piece of legislation, it can always be declared unconstitutional. So that's your big stuff. And then the legislative branch has the most power over the other two, okay? As far as over the executive branch, <clears throat> the big one, and, and for the judicial branch as well, the Congress can always impeach a president, an executive. Uh, they can also impeach, <clears throat> excuse me, a, a judge. So there, there's that. Uh, also over the executive branch, uh, Congress has control of the budget. They have uh, the ability um, to kind of force the president's hand when it comes to their appointments. It's called advice and consent. They have to approve all appointments, whether it be a department position, whether it be a judge, uh, they have to approve treaties. So they can really kind of twist the arm of the president and force them to pick people that they want and that they agree with. So that's a pretty big one. Uh, as far as the, over the, the, the courts, like I said, they do have the impeachment power uh, they can also make legislation that kind of counteracts a judicial decision. Um, think uh, same-sex marriage. Courts ruled in favor of, of uh, same-sex marriage in 2014-15. If Congress did not agree with it, they could always create a piece of legislation that says, hey, uh, marriage is between a man and a woman, and they could try and word it to where the Supreme Court cannot rule it as unconstitutional. Uh, I don't think they, they will because I think people will um, accept it now. But um, in theory, they could have. They did this with the flag burning back in uh, 1989, Texas versus Johnson. People were upset that the flag burning was declared uh, constitutional and a symbolic speech thing. 
And so they made a piece of legislation uh, that said, hey, all flag burning is banned. The courts ruled that unconstitutional as well, but it was an option. All right, separation of powers. I think we have a good understanding from the uh, the first unit, that's Montesquieu's thing, where only you know one person, one branch should have powers. All right, federalism. And we'll talk specifically about some of the federalism stuff in just a moment, but that is the sharing of powers between the branches. Um, I mean, excuse between the uh, the state and federal government. And you know, we could go further, local governments and things like that. But uh, <clears throat> think about it. You know, we have the federal government. They can make rules and laws that we have to follow. The states can make rules and laws that we have to follow. Uh, and we have to just, uh, I don't want to say submit, but uh, we're expected to, because of the, the social contract and all those kinds of things, we are supposed to kind of follow all these different governments. So, you know, here in Georgia, if you're working, you're paying both a federal income tax and a state income tax. So they share power. Uh, full faith and credit privileges and immunities. These are state state things. So full faith and credit just means that um, every state is gonna gonna honor other states legal stuff basically. <laughs> That's a really technical term, legal stuff. But contracts, court decisions, uh, licenses, things like that are going to be honored from state to state. You don't have to go and get new stuff when you move from one state to the next. You don't have to, uh, to, to get a new driver's license or uh, anything like that uh, if you're just visiting. Okay, things are going to be honored. Um, and I, I, in, in class, I use myself in, as an example. So if you listen to the review in class and you heard this before, but I got married for the first time in Florida. Um, we moved up here. I didn't have to get remarried here in Georgia. All right. Uh, and then I got divorced from her here in Georgia. I didn't have to go down to Florida and sign any paperwork. Just the stuff was good from one place to the next. All right. Uh, privileges and immunities. This is just your, your kind of your rights. It's not, well, full faith and credit is, you know, honoring your state-to-state -state contracts and things like that. Uh, privileges and immunities just means you're not going to be treated any different going from state to state. So if you go visit uh, New York, you're going to be treated the same as a citizen of that state is. There's no special rules and regulations for you uh, coming into that state. So privileges and immunities there's just no special distinctions between uh, citizens of one state and citizens of another. All right, the Commerce Clause. Uh, this was a fix for the Constitution uh, of the Articles of Confederation. Remember, under the Articles of Confederation, the uh, central government could not tax, could not control commerce. So they went about fixing that by putting into the Constitution this Commerce Clause. The Commerce Clause states specifically what Congress can do. They can collect taxes. They can money they can regulate and control interstate commerce they want to be sure that they fixed that problem the supremacy clause is also pretty easy to understand the supremacy clause just says that the central government and the constitution is number one okay so well the constitution is number one the law of the land is constitution it's number one numero uno the federal laws is second okay uh, and you know state laws come after federal laws. Um, actually, they're pretty low on the list. And then finally is the Necessary and Proper Clause, also called the Elastic Clause. The Elastic Clause is what is going to 
allow Congress specifically, all right, to kind of stretch out their powers. That's why it's called the elastic clause, because they do get to stretch things that are written in the Constitution. Okay. Um, so they can take things, another technical term there, they can take some of the express powers, okay, the things that are listed in the Constitution. Congress can do this. Congress can do that. And then they can kind of stretch it out a little bit. Well, it doesn't say specifically that they can do that, but because of this article, or excuse me, this clause of Article 1, the Necessary and Proper Clause, they can interpret it to allow them to do it. And like I said, I, I, I need to find better example, or I shouldn't say better, this because it's a great example, but just new and different examples. But I just love U.S. history, and I love talking about the National Bank. It's not in the Constitution anywhere. Nowhere, you go to the Constitution, go back to your scavenger hunt, and look for any mention of a National Bank in the Constitution. You won't find one, all right? Um, so the question is, can Congress do that? Necessary and proper clause says they can't because they take the commerce statements where they control the coin of money, they control taxes and all those things, and it allows them to stretch their powers and create a bank because it's tied to the commerce part. All right. Uh, federalism. So we said the definition. That's the sharing of power between governments. And then there are a couple of things under there. First off is a mandate. All right. So there's going to be a very specific question on the test about mandates. It's a pretty low-level question. I think it's really just the definition almost. Um, but these are directives or orders from the federal government to the states. Hey, you're going to do this. Uh, and sometimes it's pleasant. Sometimes their states are okay with it. It's necessary. Other times states really don't like it. Um, the Americans with Disabilities Act was a mandate. States, you're going to retrofit and you're going to create um, handicap access to all buildings, all state buildings, uh, by such and such date. Okay? Um, no child left behind. Too young or too old for y'all because y'all are barely born. But schools had to meet a certain number um, or they had to provide all this extra stuff for their students. Okay? Uh, mandate. There was no money for it. Just you had to do it. So that's what a mandate is. It's basically a directive, an order from the federal government to the states. You're going to do this. Uh, dual versus cooperative. Okay, so there's two types of federalism you got to know. Dual federalism, you might see this as a layer cake. Dual federalism is where um, the states... And the, and the national governments have their roles, they have their stuff, they have their things that they do, and they don't mesh, they don't mix, they don't get involved in the other, one or the other, okay? The best example to me is military versus education. The military is a federal thing. There is no state military. There's the National Guard, but they can be federalized if they need to. So all these bases that Georgia has, Fort Benning, Dobbins Air Force Base, and they say those are all federal things. The state of Georgia is not going to bother. They're not going to try and take them over. They're not going to bother with trying to, to run them. That's a federal thing. Education is a state thing. The federal government has some federal standards, but for the most part, states are able to run the schools as they see fit. This is, you, this is why you see such a wildly discrepant uh, amount of spending on education from state to state. Some states spend Roughly fifteen thousand per student. Others spend a lot less, two, three, four, five thousand dollars per student. 
It's because there is no consensus, there is no uniform number that has to be spent at various state to state because they get to control it and the federal government has no say so. Then you got cooperative federalism. Cooperative federalism might be compared to a marble cake. And for me, uh, the turning point when we really started to go cooperative was the Great Depression and then the New Deal. All right. You had all these things, the whole you know, alphabet soup of the New Deal plan from uh, from Roosevelt. And just it was almost impossible for the federal government to try and do everything. So they really relied on the states to get things done. Uh, and to help them out. And so you had this blending. And then you think about after 9-11, since we just got done, um, you know, remembering that day. Uh, after that, you know, the in, the in the days, weeks, and months after that, there was a lot of organizations, both state and federal levels, that came together to try and keep people safe, whether it be at the airports, uh, traveling, things like that, uh, on the ground, uh, you know, looking for uh, threats, whatever it might be. Uh, a, a blending there of state and federal, and no one really cared. They just wanted to, to make sure the job was being done. Okay. Um, another good example of this is the environment. You've got the federal EPA who enforces laws. You've also got the state EPA. They both enforce all these laws uh, that protect the environment. Okay. Uh, fiscal federalism. Fiscal federalism is just the money. So remember, states really don't want to do what the federal government wants them to do. States would much rather just do their own thing. But the federal government entices states to do things by giving them money. So here's a check. Here's some cash. Okay, yes. But we want you to do this. All right, so uh, it's, it's a way of enticing states to, to enforce federal laws and rules and regulations that uh, they that the federal government wants the states to do. Uh, you got two types you got to know. You got categorical grants and you got block grants. Categorical grants, these are the ones that come with the, the strings attached. So when I say strings attached, it means here's some money, but you got to do this. All right. So uh, like if your parents give you some gas money, like here's, here's $50 for gas, but you got to spend it on gas. You can't go to McDonald's for lunch and spend this money. It All $50 has to be spent on gas or you don't get it again. Same thing happens with the federal government. Federal government gives money and says you got to do this with it or you don't get it again. Okay. Uh, my favorite example is the drinking age. Talked about this in class. It's a state law. Every state can have a different drinking age uh, if they want to. Uh, the federal government encourages it to be 21. They encourage by saying if you don't make it 21 states, we're going to take away the funding for your road construction. And so states comply and they make the drinking age 21. All right. Uh, block grants are, I don't want to say free money, but it is money that states can use as they want to, to run whatever program it is. So welfare is a great example of this. Welfare is a federally funded program. So the federal government cuts checks to the states for their welfare, welfare programs, and they can spend it how they want to. They can run the program how they want to. This is why you get widely, widely varying implementation of welfare programs. Uh, yeah, some states I've seen have six months on, then you got to be off for a while. You have five total years. You can be on and off however long you want to, but every time you're on, the clock starts ticking, and once you get five years, you're off. Okay. Uh, some states want to drug test welfare recipients. There's all kinds of things that are out there. And the different states can do kind of what they want to because of this block grant and because it is 
once again, not free money, but they can run the program how they want to. All right, the 10th Amendment. Uh, we put this in federalism because it deals with states. Okay. Uh, the 10th Amendment is basically the reserve powers of the states. The 10th Amendment states that as long as it does not specifically deny states something, then they are allowed to make the decisions for themselves. They're allowed to do things. That's the reserve powers. As long as the Constitution doesn't specifically deny. All right. The, the Constitution specifically denies and says states. I mean, uh, Congress is the only one that can declare war. So Georgia can't go off and declare war with the Bahamas or Cuba or whatever and try to take over uh, you know, one of those island countries. Uh, we can't do that. We don't have that ability. All right. Uh, but, you know, making the voting laws, you know, Georgia has a pretty controversial law out there, if you heard about it. Uh, they're allowed to do that because it's not specifically denied to them in the Constitution. So reserve power, they can run the elections as they see fit. And that's what the reserve powers is. It's just the powers left to the states. All right, you got two court cases you got to know, McCullough versus Maryland and U.S. versus Lopez. Uh, McCullough versus Maryland happened back in the 1830s, 1820s, somewhere in there. Uh, this dealt with the National Bank. And uh, basically what was happening is the Congress created a National Bank, like we said earlier when we were talking about um, necessary and proper clause. And some states hated it. And so Maryland was one of those, and they tried to, to destroy it by taxing it. So they didn't pay the taxes, the National Bank didn't, so they went to court. All right. I mean, that's summing it up pretty quickly. Um, the court had to rule, answer two questions. First off, can Congress create a bank? And secondly, can the states tax a federal institution? They use two clauses we've talked about. First question, can the Congress create a bank? Yes, necessary and proper clause says they can create a bank. Commerce clause and the necessary and proper clause were used here. Necessary and proper clause was used to expand the uh, the whole commerce thing. Okay, and then the second one: Can states tax a federal institution? No, supremacy clause. Federal institutions are way above states when it comes to the supremacy clause. All right, U.S. versus Lopez uh, was kind of a blow to the federal government. The federal government likes to use the commerce clause to get involved in cases in issues where the states are doing something, but maybe they don't like the way the states are doing. Okay. And in U.S. versus Lopez, it dealt with guns in schools. There's a national, there was a national gun-free, gun-free school zone act. And Lopez brought a gun to school. He got caught, charged at the state level by Texas, which is where he was caught. And the federal government comes in and wants to get involved. I'm not, I, I've not researched, I need to figure out why, but the, the federal government wanted to come in and, and push the issue and press charges as well at the federal level. All right, so this is why it's U.S. versus Lopez and not Lopez versus Texas or Texas versus Lopez, because Lopez is going to argue federal government, you shouldn't be involved here. You don't have the right and the ability to charge me because what are you doing? It's at a school. All right. And so the Supreme Court has to answer the question, can the federal government come in and pursue charges under the, the Gun Free School Zone Act at the federal level based on the Commerce Clause? And the, the, the Supreme Court said no. You're overstepping your bounds here, uh, federal government, because schools, high schools, have nothing to do with interstate commerce. All right, Articles of Confederation, uh, the weaknesses and the fixes. So you need to know some of the weaknesses. You need to know some of the fixes. So we said, you know, commerce was an issue. They couldn't tax. They couldn't uh, coin money. They couldn't do any of that stuff. And so they put into the Constitution specifically the Commerce Clause to fix that problem. Other problems, they couldn't control the military. 
So now uh, you have the commander in chief and you have uh, Congress with some powers and abilities to declare war and things like that. There's a fix. Uh, you had unanimous consent needed to do any kind of change to the Articles of Confederation. Let's fix that by dropping it down from unanimous to we have now two-thirds of Congress and three-fourths of states have to agree. Okay, so some uh, some some problems, and then the fixes is what you need to concentrate on. I'm not going to go through all of them because I've run a little time. Um, if you have questions, feel free to email me or text me. Judicial review. Uh, this is something I, I, I throw in. I should I shouldn't say I throw in, but I kind of gloss over just because people are usually getting it in uh, U.S. history, and I know last year was such a weird year for people, uh, and so I don't know how much you got Marbury versus Madison uh, like you usually would. Alrighty, so real quick, this is the case where Jefferson, I mean uh, Adams, uh, created a whole bunch of judgeships as he was leaving office. Alrighty. Uh, and Jefferson refused to honor those things. And so it went to court because Marbury was supposed to be a judge and he didn't get the job. So he sued, for lack of a better word. And uh, the courts were saying, you know what? That whole Judiciary Act, the whole thing that creates these positions was unconstitutional. We're blowing the whole thing up. And so they uh, they kind of got rid of that thing. And that's what created judicial review. So typically, if you see a Marbury versus Madison question, it's going to be about judicial review. Federalist versus Anti-Federalist, another thing I kind of gloss over because of your U.S. history background. Um, remember, the Federalists, they wanted to support a large central government. They were for the Constitution. They were going to write the Federalist Papers to encourage people to, to get behind the Constitution. The Anti-Federalists, they were against the central government. They wanted strong state governments. Right? That's where they wanted the power to be. Uh, they wanted a Bill of Rights. That was the big hang-up between the two at the end of the day was anti-federalists wanted a Bill of Rights. Federalists like, well, you know what? There's all kinds of rights that matter. Uh, and they were also saying that the federal government would just protect people's rights. They wouldn't crush people's rights. So I'm really kind of glad the anti-federalists pushed. All right, the Constitutional Convention, the compromises you got to know. You got to know the Great Compromise, the Three-Fifths, and the Commerce. All right, the Great Compromise very quickly combined the Virginia Plan and the New Jersey Plan. So the Virginia Plan, and now, uh, one, one thing here, both... The problem back then was there was only one house, one one piece, one one legislative body under both these plans. Today we don't hey, just do two houses; it's easy. But it wasn't back then. That, that wasn't the the norm, and so we uh, we had some problems there because you had the Virginia plan, which called for this one house, uh, the representation to be based on population. So state large states are like, yes, that's let's go, we love it. Small states are like, yeah, don't like that so much. And so they created the New Jersey plan, which was the opposite, and said, hey, we're going to do it on equality. Every state should be having the same number of votes. So let's just give every state the same number of votes. Once again, it sounds easy. And, you know, we snap our fingers and, hey, here's the great compromise. And we got two houses and we're done. But, man, there was a lot of discussion, a lot of controversy back then about creating two houses. Can they do that? And so uh, eventually, the Great Compromise was reached where they created a House of Representatives based on population. So the more people you have, the more people you get in the House. And then based uh, equality is the Senate side, where we have two senators from every state. The Three-Fifths Compromise dealt with taxation and representation. Taxes were going to count for two things. I mean, uh, population was going to count for two things. I'm trying to go quick because I'm running short. Um, <clears throat> so I'm stumbling. Um, population was going to determine the amount of representation you had in the House. And also the amount of taxes you paid 
as a state. So the South had this population, the slave population, that they pretty much did not consider parts of the population. But now all of a sudden, for representation purposes, they, they want them to count. But for taxes, they're like, no, they don't. North was the opposite. They said that the slave population should count for taxes, but not for representation purposes. So once again, we snap our fingers and the three-fifths compromise. This took some time to come to, uh, but they eventually decided to count three-fifths of the slave population for both taxes and representation. And then finally is the commerce compromise. This deals with the importation of slaves, the slave trade. Uh, basically, the South did not want the federal government to be able to regulate it. The North wanted them to. They came up with the commerce compromise, which said that uh, the federal government would not touch the slave trade for 20 years. So 1808 was the year that they were able to start regulating. All right, the amendments. Uh, I'm not going to go through all 10 amendments again. Um, just know that the, the first 10 amendments are the Bill of Rights, and this is what settled uh, the debate over the Constitution and what got the Anti-Federalists to come on board. You do need to know a couple clauses, the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. The Establishment Clause, this is the one that says two things. First off, the federal government and state governments actually will not create a, uh, a state-sponsored religion. So there will never be a uh, first church of the United States that you're forced to go to. Okay. It also says they won't make rules and laws that apply uh, or that favor one religion over the other. And then the free exercise clause is what allows you to worship how you want to. You can worship as you want to. Uh, so this, you know, you can be whatever religion you want to. You can worship how you want to as long as you're not doing illegal things. All right, the exclusionary rule. Uh, this deals with uh, unlawful search and seizures, and basically illegally obtained evidence cannot be used against you. Rights of the accused. This is the Fourth Amendment, the search and seizure. The Fifth Amendment, the right to remain silent. You, know, you don't have to testify against yourself. Uh, the Sixth Amendment, which is your right to a fair and speedy trial, lawyer, judge, jury, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Seventh Amendment, which deals with civil cases and getting the jury. And then the Eighth Amendment, which deals with cruel and unusual punishments. Um, so all those things, the Fourth, Fifth, Sixth, and Seventh, are all about the rights of the accused. Um, and then, yeah, there we go. All right, last couple things here. Impeachment. Impeachment is the decision to charge a federal official. Okay, so please... Please don't think that it's kicking someone out. We've never had a president kicked out of office. Had a couple of judges, but never a president. Uh, impeachment is a two-step process. First off, the House, and you do need to know these numbers, the House has to vote or create an articles of impeachment and then vote on them. A simple majority gets it going over to the Senate. So impeachment, the House draws up the articles of impeachment, the Senate then has the trial. Two-thirds of the Senate has to say, yes, let's kick this person out for the person to be kicked out. So we've had three presidents impeached. None of them have been kicked out. None of them have been found guilty. The amendments. Uh, so on your review, it's a two-step process, and each step has two possibilities. So first off is the proposal. Uh, the way we typically do things is Congress to state legislatures. Okay, so a amendment has to be proposed at the national level at, in Congress. We've never done the National Convention. So let's just, we're not going to really worry too much about the National Convention. We've always done Congress. Two-thirds of Congress has to vote yes to this proposal. So I want to create one time, no daylight savings time, nothing like that. I present it to Congress. Here's the amendment. Two-thirds of them say yes. It then goes to the next step. All right, so two-thirds of Congress, and you do need to know this, because this is also your amendment, I mean, uh, your FRQ. So two-thirds of Congress 
says yes. Or we could do the National Convention, which we've never done. Why should we when we have Congress already? Once Congress says yes, we then go to the ratification. So the states have to approve it. All right, so the states have to approve it. We've only done a state convention once. We typically do state legislatures. Three-fourths, 38 state legislatures have to say yes to, for an amendment to become an amendment. All right, so two-thirds of Congress, three-fourths of the states. This is a very, very, very difficult number to get. It's, very, it's a very high bar. Uh, and we do this because, first off, we don't want just any old amendment being passed. A couple years ago, a congressman from Pennsylvania wanted Hershey, Pennsylvania to be the chocolate capital of America. Sounds great. Do we need that to be an amendment, though? No. So we don't want anything, just anything being added. Secondly, we want the people to have a voice. We want to be sure that the people of America have a voice in this process, and that's why it's the two-step process. It's also a good example of federalism, where they're sharing power, they're sharing responsibility. All right? So a lot of things go into that high bar and making sure that this is created correctly. All right. That's what your amendment will be on. I mean, you'll say that. That's what your FRQ will be on is the amendment process. It's a concept analysis thing where uh, you're given a scenario and you write about it. So just study up on the amendment process. There's also some questions on your test about it. So the test is 28 questions, multiple choice, and then you got the FRQ. You should probably take about 30 minutes on the uh, multiple choice, and then that'll leave you 20 minutes for the FRQ. I don't think you'll need that much time for the FRQ as it is pretty short. All right, guys, as always, if you have questions, please, 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 please text me, email me, hit me up on uh, Remind, whatever it might be. If you want to interact on social media, feel free to use um, the K Daniels AP Gov or the school one, chhsgov underscore civics. I'll see y'all in class on Wednesday. Hope all is well. Bye-bye.